0: You're listening to the Resurgent ATL Church podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. We want to welcome today. Uh, you know, Randall Worley is he is such a blessing to the body of Christ, and he is especially a blessing to this house. He has been a voice of wisdom for Terry and I. I remember. I think I might have said this before, but I remember when Terry and I went to start this church. Um, he was one of the first people that called me and said, hey, I'm here for you anytime you need me. And uh, how many of you guys know that's that's hard to come by some, you know? And uh, so we are so appreciative. Uh, Randall is also on our uh, Apostolic Advisory Board, and uh, uh, the, the wisdom and the inside and the grace that he brings is just absolutely incredible. So I want you guys to stand up and give a round of applause to Mr. Randall Worley. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question for you. Is the uh, worship always this good? I mean that with all sincerity because um, after all these years of traveling around the world, I have become somewhat of a connoisseur of what is really good wine. And um, Cody, where are you, Julie? Oh, I just—I uh, feel like that anything that followed that is going to be anticlimactic. I—I I mean that with all sincerity. And Lacey, you—the—you you almost left me with nothing to say. <laughs> I wanted to say, "Shut up." <laughs> No. Yeah, you were. It's like you'd been in my head all morning long. I, uh, I, I do want to say that before I get busy here this morning, that um, there is something distinctly different from the last time I was here, and I, I. Trust that you realize that, and so many of you don't know me. um, That I hope you would realize that that is not just me patronizing you. There is really something, and sometimes it takes somebody coming from the outside um, to make that observation, because we can all become so incredibly subjective, can't we? And um, so wonderful, wonderful. I'd like for you, if you would, to turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. And while you're finding your place, uh, a COVID nurse recently asked me if I'd experienced a sudden loss in taste. And I told her, I said, no, I've always dressed this way. (laughs) So I was offended. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Matthew chapter 12 uh, verses 19 through 21 Jesus is quoting Isaiah and he says he will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets then he employs a very unique cultural metaphor that this audience would be very familiar with. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. i have got a little bit of a ring, that's why I'm trying to get away from those speakers. I don't need that one, thank you. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I want to talk to you about the beauty in brokenness. And when people hear those two words paired, quite often, it sounds rather counterintuitive. How can there be any beauty in brokenness? especially in a culture like this where breakthrough has a high value. Uh, We hear this word used, and in my opinion, overused, misused, and abused, breakthrough. And I am not by any means uh, wanting to sound like a skeptic when it comes to breakthrough. I've had my share. But I also recognize that there's something that happens uh, in all of us when we experience brokenness that quite often we, I think we misinterpret. So many people right now are, are suffering deeply around the world because of the last few months. And I understand, as many of you do, that suffering is inevitable. It's a part of the human experience. It's certainly not something that we aggrandize, but it really is a part of the human experience. And so, in my opinion, I believe, though, that suffering is often exacerbated as a result of us having an unhealthy attachment to expected outcomes. I think this is where most of us are right now, especially in this country, because we had a certain expected outcome. Well, shouldn't we live expectantly? Yeah, we should, but we cannot allow ourselves to be attached to those outcomes in an unhealthy way. We really are in a time right now of disorder and disorientation. Um, Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, says that the book of Psalms in particular is arranged in this manner. There are psalms of orientation, and there are psalms of disorientation and psalms of reorientation. We have had, obviously, a certain orientation in the past, and then this disruption in our way of living has brought us into this, what seems to be a protracted season of disorientation. But the hope is that there will be a reorientation. It's true that sometimes... Really good things have to fall apart so that better things can come together. So when Jesus is speaking here and he talks about justice, and I don't certainly have time to explore the depth of what he says concerning justice, but the metaphor that he uses here I think is, a, is per- perfect for what I want to talk to you about concerning this idea of there being beauty in brokenness, because he says here, a bruised reed he will not break. What did he mean by that? You see, in that world, in that ancient first century world, reeds uh, were often harvested from the riverbank by children. They would carve them and carve openings in them and make flutes out of them, make them instruments but they were usually very fragile and if they were broken and unable anymore to create a melody, they're tossed aside because they grow in abundance by the river. We'll just get another one. It really has to do with a disposable mentality. And then the next thing he mentions here is a smoldering wick he will not quench. that world houses were illuminated by bowls of oil and these bowls of oil would have wicks floating in them and uh, over time they become charred and unable to sustain a flame. Well that's not a problem because you can just discard it and get another one. Uh, Quite often if you were entertaining guests and uh, this occurred and it begins to emit this smoke and smudge in the room it was rather embarrassing to the host so you understand that when Jesus makes use of these metaphors he's always using those things that are hidden in plain sight essentially to teach from and he makes it clear to them he says you know I I don't dispose of things in the way that you do. And I understand that there's something of restorative and redemptive nature even in that thing that appears to be totally useless and should be discarded. How encouraging is that? Is anybody encouraged so far? You know, uh, I do think, though, that it's really important for us to... To realize that it has re- it has become acceptable in uh, in America to remain wound identified. Yeah. I mean that uh, that's using our victimhood as a ticket for sympathy. Now I think I've troubled some of you. <laughs> Instead of using the wound to heal the world, we become wound-identified. I learned a long time ago that real wisdom is not constantly saying, why is this happening to me? Why did they do that? But real wisdom learns to say, what is this saying to me? understanding that what i'm doing this morning is perceived by most people as teaching but the greatest teachers in your life are the people that irritate you the most <laughs> the people that have hurt and wounded you that again is counterintuitive isn't it but god see god is always coming to you disguised as your own life <laughs> And we would prefer breakthrough, but we break down. And as a result, we don't understand that there could be some beauty here in this. I promise you, every problem I have ever had, I've always been present. Everywhere I have ever gone, I've always been there. And if you don't take anything away from what I'm saying this morning, make sure you take this one. The change that you are desperate to see take place in other people usually is a reflection of the change that needs to take place in you. That's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? But it remains to be true. I... uh, I'm deeply concerned about what I'm seeing happening in our culture, the broader culture, not just the church culture, but it's spilling over, isn't it, into the church culture as well. The polarization, the divisive narrative that is constantly being played out every day. And there is a dominant narrative that, and I don't want you to think that I am some kind of conspiracy theorist, That you know, has become obsessed with deep state or anything like that, even though I have been accused of that. I've been accused of worse. But I think uh, you resonate with that, I'm sure, that this dominant narrative that really is a script that is designed with great intention, when we lie down at night... The principalities, the spirit, the wickedness in high places, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist it's referred to, um, they are carefully crafting a message that they intend on distracting you with. They want you to pay attention to that. Now, some of you, again, my God, he is a conspiracy theorist. No, I I think we need to understand this and know that it is something that is influencing us without us even being aware of it. It's the divide and conquer dominant narrative. And uh, we call ourselves believers. But in reality, we have become practical atheists because we allow this earworm you know what an earworm is it sounds gross he said yeah Uh, this is this euphemism that describes for example a melody that you get in your head and you can't get it out it's on a loop it just continues to replay And so the reason why I feel like that's appropriate and relevant to the conversation this morning is because we live in a wound-identified culture. The scapegoating and the victimhood that has become so prevalent. And, and, and I, I want to say this, I was grossly misunderstood just a few weeks ago when I posted this particular statement and I asked a rhetorical question, who's responsible for your pain? And I followed it up by saying, you are. And somebody reached out to me and, uh, you know, at, at least they did reach out to me and said, I've, I've got a real problem with what you said. And you do understand that there's so much that is lost in translation these days. More than ever before, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And peace is not necessarily the absence of problems, as most people think. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me after a meeting and they rehearse what they thought I said and what they thought I said and what I actually said didn't even remotely resemble one another. Sometimes what they thought I said was actually better than what I actually said, and I was quick to write it down. Isn't that amazing? So when I made that statement, who's responsible for your pain, and followed it up by saying you are, he was offended by that. And I said to him, I said, no, 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 I I am not by any means want to sound like I'm exonerating the perpetrator, I'm not doing that at all, but we have to understand that there's culpability here on both sides. And what I'm saying is, is that when I am wounded, when I am offended, when I am hurt, then what I do with that pain is my responsibility. I can't allow myself to hold that person, the perpetrator, responsible because, see, this this is going to sound bizarre to you. Do you realize that this victimhood mentality, this scapegoating culture that we live in right now, actually, again, it's going to sound paradoxical. It gives the person that has been the victim of this, it gives them the gives them in their minds moral high ground that I can hold you responsible for this in perpetuity. And the problem with that is that you never grow. You'll never grow like that. The problems that come to us in many different forms are not always saying solve me as much as they're saying outgrow me. It'll be better next Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Brokenness is the reality, isn't it? So how am I going to handle it? Because I, I promise you, if you don't learn how to transform pain, you'll become a transmitter of it. Have you ever considered why Jesus, when he appears to the disciples behind closed doors in John chapter 20, you remember this? In John chapter 20, Jesus just materializes in the room because in his 40 days of resurrection appearances, he travels at the speed of intention or thought. And so here they are in this room. They must not only be to some degree suffocating because they're crowded in this cramped room. This is in John 20. And uh, they are traumatized. You see, we here on this side of the resurrection, uh, we have a different reality than they did, didn't we? Don't we? So here they are in this cramped, suffocating room. And uh, I'm sure that there's difficulty in them even making eye contact with one another. It's very possible, if you allow me the liberty, it's very possible that John, who was the only one present at the cross, is attempting to tell them what he saw. He's describing that And is it possible, maybe even standing that close to the cross, that some of the blood of the Savior had spattered on his tunic? And here these other guys are sitting there, feeling as if we disappointed him, we let him down. John, John was there. But we let him down. Uh, let, me, let me help you with something. If you have ever felt that you have been a disappointment to God, if you've ever felt that, and if you got a pulse, you have felt that, I promise you it is totally impossible for you to ever disappoint God because in order for you to disappoint God, you'd have to do something that he didn't already know that you were capable of doing. But they're in the grip of disappointment, traumatized. John is telling him, you know, it was so horrific looking at him in that condition. His body was mangled, and I, I can still hear him wheezing and groaning under the pain of what he experienced on the cross. I won't spend too much time trying to get that image to you in graphic high definition. But you get the point. These guys probably can't even make eye contact with one another. And they don't hear footsteps approaching. You know They're not only holed up here, secure in place because of that, but for fear that it was going to happen to them. They don't hear footsteps approaching. They don't hear anybody knock at the door. And in that state of mind, he just, poof, he's there. And see, we can read these verses, you need to consider this, we can read these verses in a matter of seconds, but in reality, we don't know just how awkward and how protracted this moment. We don't know if this went on for an hour. And when Jesus appears, the first thing he says to them is peace, shalom, shalom. This is pretty much a normal greeting, like a, hi, how are you, in that world. And we assume that Jesus immediately followed it up by showing him his wounds. But maybe after he appears in the room and they are stupefied by this, they, are, they have the deer in the headlight look. I'm not sure that initially that they really recognized him because often he was appearing during his resurrection appearances in forms that were foreign to them. But then he shows them his wounds. Now, the question is, this begs the question, did he show them his wounds in order to convey to them, look what I went through for you? You're responsible for this. No, that's not at all why he did it. He showed them his wounds to show them that they too would experience resurrection power and still be wounded at the same time. That's why Paul would say, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Whenever, see, there's some of you right now that are suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, all these different facets of suffering. And see, what we need to do is understand the depths of Paul's teaching about suffering because, see, just a year and a half ago when we all went into this lockdown mode like these men were in John chapter 20, I heard the you know, the expected response of so many, that God is in control. And I began to ask people when I finally was allowed to go out again, is God in control? And I would get a unanimous, yes, God is in control. And I would challenge that. I have somebody's attention now. Oh, yeah. Yeah the staple verse of scripture is Romans 8:28 for we know that all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose and we're really good at cherry picking passages of scripture and sound bites And we don't understand the the broader context of what Paul said when he said, all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God's got this. God is good. God's in control. Because the verses leading up to that, Paul says, For I consider not the sufferings of this present time, I consider not the sufferings of this present time to be worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And then he goes into this whole concept of how that creation is groaning. All of creation is groaning and in travail. And we ourselves groan within ourselves. There's a a resonating between the groaning of the planet that we live on and the groaning that we feel within ourselves that is anticipating the manifestation of the sons of God. So how is there beauty in all this brokenness and suffering? It has everything in the world to do with perspective and what you deem to be reality. Reality. I think we're being invited into, and this is another topic altogether, a cruciform reality because when Jesus is hanging on the cross and there are those that are looking up at him, their perspective they think is reality, but the one who is hanging on the cross is the one that has the real perspective on reality. Do you get that? See... The way you see things are not the way they are. It's just the way you see it. And God is intent on changing the way you see things because if he can change in you the way you see things, the things you see will begin to change. So Jesus was a victim, but he did not allow himself To get into this victimhood mentality. So he absorbed it. He took it. And he transformed it. What has happened to you? That you just can't get over. I promise you. It will continue to happen to you. Until you learn how to transform it. So Jesus, what does he do when he shows them the wounds? He looks at them and he says something, he does something rather strange. He breathes on them. This is reminiscent of the creation story, isn't it? Because the first breath that was ever taken on the planet was not taken by Adam, the progenitor of the entire human race. The first breath that was ever taken on the planet was taken by God, who is love. God doesn't have love. He is love. He is the very essence of love. Love is his essence. So the first breath that was ever taken on this planet that resuscitated a man In whom he knew that he would produce, this man would produce a race of conflict and hurt and pain. Love animated this species that in the first family, a brother will murder the other, a homicide in close proximity to the Garden of Eden. So it was love that set that in motion. So Jesus breathes on them because he recognized the suffocating nature of humanity. And how. And let me put it to you in, in uh, contemporary terms. This thing that has happened to our culture has knocked the breath out of us, hasn't? It's knocked the wind out of us. It has... I mean, and I'm not just talking about breathing in and out physically as much as I am. It has, because the word inspiration means God breathed. That's what this thing is after. It's about our inspiration. It's about, are you getting this at all? It is about trying to leave us breathless. I mean, how many of you have found yourself I have you find yourself for no reason at all you shouldn't be out of breath but you find yourself (sighs) anybody I mean that is an involuntary response isn't it is because you see because see this is there's something about trauma that people need to be very self-aware about because trauma is carried as well at a molecular level in the body. You know, you can work it out here, but that means that your body still remembers what your mind forgot. Oh, well, maybe that's the reason why he showed them the wounds. This is a science of epigenetics that you carry. You see, the, the wounds sometimes are not the ones that have ever bled. but they're at a deeper level. Hopefully, you're beginning to understand that uh, you really don't need some of the answers that you are desperate for. Because if you got the answers that you are desperate for, it really would not foster faith in you. Really? Really? see we have this tendency don't we because of our insatiable ego we want to know why and sometimes we fail to realize that the opposite of faith is not doubt but certainty and god's trying to live god's trying to help you to live in ambiguity and mystery See, this is extremely difficult for me because the way I'm wired, I want to sort things out. Did did you pick up on that? You know, you talk about the paralysis of analysis. I've suffered from that condition most of my life. And it really does paralyze, doesn't it? So what does he, after he breathes on them, he said, receive you the Holy Spirit. And then he says something that seems like it doesn't fit. Whoever sins you remit will be forgiven. Why would he say such a thing? Because I believe that they had not forgiven themselves for letting God down. Most people don't give up on God. They give up on themselves. The inner critic is forever with us, isn't it? The person that judges you, the worst is not your spouse, not your family members, your peers, but you, the one you see in the mirror every morning. And then you walk out into a world and you reflect that self-judgment. To other people. And you spread the disease of brokenness. It really is. I mean, you've heard it said before, and it sounds trite to a lot of people, but the word disease is just that, dis, a lack, a dysfunction, a lack of ease. So it was about forgiveness, wasn't it? We we essentially uh, show up here in this human experience thinking that there's basically two different responses to that which is threatening. One is fight or flight, and we don't understand the higher way, which is forgiveness. See, really, I'm able to breathe right now because of the first breath that was ever taken on this planet, which is love. And I've always loved making reference to that because even the atheist and the agnostic, in their denial of God's existence, do it by the very breath of God. I hope I'm helping you I'm not, I'm not trying to provoke you I want to help you and I think that this is something that is relevant not only here at Resurgent but it's relevant in any place that we go to today because if we don't bring resolution to these things then we become carriers how many of you have ever heard of broken heart syndrome you ever heard of that a few of you I have a dear friend that I have known for almost 45 years whose uh, first husband was my best friend. He died tragically in a drowning accident. To make it even more traumatizing, his 12-year-old son was on the catamaran with him when he fell off in a storm and drowned. I've never heard guttural grief and sobbing like I heard come out of my friend. Three or four years later, she met another man. She married him and she had a son by him. Almost to the day, 13 years later, he died of a massive heart attack. Two husbands Two sons by each, almost 13 years to the day with each of them. She begins to experience heart problems. She goes to the doctor. They do extensive tests on her, and there was absolutely no biological reason as to why she is having these issues. The cardiologist is uh, stumped by all of this. At first, he calls a neurologist and he said, Oh, I can tell you exactly what's happening to her. You can't, I mean, there's no blockages, there's no arrhythmia, there's, you know, none of those things, not the usual suspects. And when he shared with the neurologist her history, he said, Oh, this is broken heart syndrome and it's just as lethal as if she had. Uh, heart disease, if she doesn't deal with it. Thank God she did, and she's married the third time now. But isn't it amazing that there are people just walking around that look totally healthy with this broken heart syndrome? God made something beautiful out of her brokenness, and he wants to make something beautiful out of yours. think about it again. It's a pretty heavy thing. Whoever sins you remit will be forgiven. See, God actually wants you to sit with him, not in a place of judgment, but a place of restoration because God's justice has always been restorative. It's never been retributive. See, many of you came up in in, an evangelical culture that taught you that God's forgiveness is a quid pro quo kind of forgiveness, that he forgives you if you do this. And I would go so far to say as well that most of you think that the death of Jesus is proof of God's forgiveness. And what you're, what you're actually insinuating is, is that God was unforgiving, unforgiving until Jesus got in between us and him. So was God unforgiving before Jesus died on the cross? No, no. Not at all. The death of Jesus on the cross was the proof that we had been blinded to his forgiveness. He didn't die to change God's mind about you, but to change your mind about God. He absorbed all of the pain. This naked, bleeding, mangled man, Jesus. And when people talk about their pain... You know, they usually are asked the question, you know, if you go to see a physician, and he'll say, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, right? And if it's 10, it's excruciating. Isn't it interesting, this word that we use so loosely without really understanding the connotation of it, excruciating, because in the word excruciating is the word crucify, excruciating. And so when he goes to the cross, he is not only absorbing all the sin of humanity, past, present, and future. He is absorbing even uh, the indignity, the, uh, the sexual abuse, because here he is. Can you imagine his mother having to look up at him? You know, his body in that condition, but he's been stripped of every dignity. He is hanging there naked. And he absorbed it all to prove to you that you can go through that and have a resurrection experience and come out on the other side and lead people into the fresh air of forgiveness where you're supposed to be breathing anyway. I'm helping myself if I'm not helping anyone. <laughs> Several years ago, I, I, I met um, Ted Decker. Some of you recognize Ted's name. Uh, Ted is um, a best-selling Christian fiction author. I mean, his book sales now are north of $10 million. And um, when I met him, he shared with me a story about, uh, he he had decided that, uh, you know, he had this quite a following, a fan base, so to speak. And he decided that he was going to have a, a raffle and whoever was chosen would be able to call him. And ask him about his writing process. So they did, and the woman was chosen, and uh, she gets a private number, and she calls Ted. And as soon as Ted answers the phone, he's surprised that she doesn't begin immediately peppering him with questions about his writing process. She said, Ted, I I don't have any questions for you about how you write books, but I do have to tell you something that happened to me, this epiphany that I had while reading one of your fiction books. She said, see, now I'm, I think she was in her 40s or 50s. She said, all my life I have struggled with obesity. And she said, I've tried everything in the world to resolve this issue, and I have not been able to do it. And she said at some point in reading one of his books that she had, again, this epiphany. And what happened was she was taken back to when she was 16 years old, and she was being savagely raped by two other teenage boys. And she said, it was surreal. I was there. I went back in time, and I'm watching all this happen to me. I'm having this out-of-body experience. And she said, "Then then I began to realize that Jesus was standing right beside of me. And I looked at him, and tears were streaming down his face. And I asked him, why did you let that happen to me? And the response of Jesus was stunning. He said, I was not just crying for you, I was crying for them. She said, in that moment, everything was resolved. She said, I'm healthy now. I don't have the problem that I have with this eating disorder. That doesn't work for us, does it? It doesn't work for us, does it? But see, we don't understand the scope of his unconditional love and his forgiveness and in all your brokenness, there is something redemptive in it. Have you ever heard of a very unique art form called kintsugi? Have you ever heard of kintsugi? Well, you're getting re- about it. <clears throat> this originated in Japan in the 15th century. And the idea came to this artisan because there were vases that were either broken by carelessness or or in anger, whatever. And the reason why they, they were so priceless was because they were heirlooms. They had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And of course, when the brokenness happened, remember a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering flax he will not quench. There's no way to put it back together, so they just discarded it. And this left a, a huge wound in these families because this peace was a connection with their past. And this artisan had this amazing idea. He said, what we will do is we will solder it together. We'll solder the broken pieces back together. And we'll dust them, the fractures, the fissures in the vase, with gold and silver. We won't try to hide where it's been broken. We'll actually highlight it. When I first discovered this, I thought in all of my personal brokenness and all the suffering that I have gone through, and it's relative, you know, that he doesn't hide it, but he highlights it. And that's why, you know, again, it's so important for us to understand that you can be resurrected and still wounded at the same time. So I conclude with this. I want to pray for you. We certainly live in a broken world, don't we? You know, I, I'm, it, it, it sounds blasphemous to most people, but I, I so appreciate this book we call the Bible that is filled from beginning to end with dysfunction. The Bible's a messy, messy book. And you, you know, come up later if you can point to me a family that is not dysfunctional. From the very first family, there is dysfunction. And God didn't hide it from us, did he? He didn't hide it from us. Lord, this morning you're such a good father and we say that sometimes in a glib way but you really are such a good father and we just ask that throughout this room brokenness in the past and whatever is happening right now that has traumatized them we ask that you would breathe on them just breathe on them Infuse them with a new level of forgiveness. Infuse them with a new dimension of grace so that they become carriers of this antidote. Help them to understand that life was never intended to be perceived as a sexually transmitted disease. And most people live that way, as if life is a sexually transmitted disease. But life was intended for them to be carriers of this amazing antidote, forgiveness. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. And I look back now, and many others will be able to do the same. I look back now, and I don't look at that in the same way I used to. And then like Joseph, I can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I take the goodness out of what appeared to be evil in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.